You're listening to From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow, Episode 6, The Torah. What is the Torah? In the last episode of this podcast, I discussed the short career of Ezra the scribe. In 458 BCE, Ezra led a group of Judeans from Babylonia back to Jerusalem. When he arrived, he was shocked to discover that some of the descendants of those who had returned years earlier had married native women, that is, the descendants of the Israelites who had never been exiled by the Babylonians in 586 BCE. Ezra does not appear to have played well with others, and he was gone from the scene by the time the year was out. Yet Ezra is best remembered not as a political leader, but as a scribe. Ezra's commission from the king, even if false or embellished in the version that appears in the book of Ezra, explicitly gave Ezra authority to appoint magistrates to rule and judge according to the law of your God and to instruct those who did not know this law. And indeed, according to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, Ezra read the scroll of the law to the puzzled community. These Jews appear to have been previously unaware of the existence of the scroll and much of its contents, and they needed interpreters, not only to bridge the language barrier, translating the Hebrew into Aramaic, but also to explain the laws. Only at this reading, on the first day of the seventh month, that is, Tishrei, do the people seem to learn about the existence of the holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Tabernacles, or Sukkot. This scroll of laws appears to have been something akin to the Torah, as it presently exists. In this episode, I will discuss the Torah. By most any criteria, the Torah is a bit strange. Written in Hebrew at a time in which most people spoke Aramaic, the Torah is a hodgepodge of stories, poems, and laws. To complicate matters, the Torah's text is hardly smooth. It seems to repeat and even contradict itself with some regularity. At other points, it is maddeningly vague. It is all well and good to be told to honor one's parents, for example, but if I am to take this seriously as the command of God, I would prefer a bit more guidance. Similarly, what does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? In the New England town in which I grew up, that was loosely interpreted as not buying liquor on Sunday. This is not to mention the flat-out normative contradictions such as how to prepare the Passover sacrifice, which I discussed in a previous episode. How are we to understand the origin and purpose of such a text? I think that such a question might best be answered from the side, as it were, rather than straight on. So please bear with me as I use three specific examples to illustrate some of the problems and gaps in the Torah's narrative. By way of these examples, I will trace the reason for the development of what is known as the documentary hypothesis, try to succinctly summarize its main claims, and then return to address the historical questions more directly. As I quickly run through these examples, it would be helpful to have a Bible at hand. Although not strictly necessary, you will get a better feel for the issues and examples if you're able to stop this episode intermittently and read the texts through yourself. Ah, but now you're no doubt asking, which Bible? What translation should I use? 
This is perhaps even a better question than you might think. The term the Bible is a bit more slippery than we sometimes think. Let me explain. The Bible, in quotation marks, is preserved in three primary versions. The Catholic Bible is the most complete, containing three major sections, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Apocrypha. In later episodes, we will amply discuss the Apocrypha. Here, suffice it to say that it is a collection of books originally written by Jews primarily, perhaps even exclusively, during the Hellenistic period. Although Jews ultimately did not accept these books as sacred, the Catholic Church ascribed a type of canonical authority to them. Predictably, then, the Protestants rejected these books, and the Protestant version omits the Apocrypha, but contains the other two sections. Predictably, then, the Protestants rejected these books, and the Protestant version omits the Apocrypha, but contains the other two sections. The Jewish Bible contains only what is known in these two other Bibles as the Old Testament. Jews, though, obviously don't and never did call it the Old Testament. Sure, it's ancient, but the term's real force is theological. For Christians, there was an old or former covenant between God and the Israelites. And now there is a new covenant with Christians that more or less supersedes the old. The term New Testament thus makes a theological claim, one that Jews reject. Instead, Jews have traditionally referred to this section of the Bible, the only section of the Bible as they know and use it, as the Tanakh, an acronym of the first letters of the Hebrew words for the three sections of this Bible, Torah, or Pentateuch, Nevi'im, Prophets, and Ketuvim, writings. Although the term Tanakh does not make an explicit theological claim like Old Testament, because it is the designation most commonly used in Jewish religious contexts, scholars have instead settled on a more value-neutral term to denote this text, the Hebrew Bible. As opposed to the New Testament, which was originally written in Greek, the Hebrew Bible notes only the language of composition and preservation, ignoring the small number of passages in Aramaic. This now raises the issues of language and translation. We all know that every translation is by nature an interpretation. Languages never equate perfectly, and there will always be words, nuances, and structures in one language that cannot be adequately represented in another. But with the Bible, there's also an added level of complexity. The English translation of the Hebrew Bible is not exactly the same as that of other versions of the Old Testament. This is because the Hebrew Bible was first translated in antiquity, and later versions of the Christian Bible made their translations from these ancient translations. Around 200 BCE, the Torah was translated into Greek in a version known as the Septuagint. The translation of the other books of the Hebrew Bible soon followed. We will discuss this further in a later episode, but for now it is worth noting that this is the version that was best known to the Apostle Paul some 250 years later, 
was used by the Greek church fathers and today remains the authoritative version in the Eastern or Orthodox Church. In the 5th century CE, Jerome used both the Hebrew and Greek versions of what he would have called the Old Testament to create a Latin translation known as the Vulgate. This remains the standard or official text of the Catholic Church. Protestants would later prepare their own translations, usually from the Hebrew text, but in consultation with the Greek and the Latin translations. So, the Hebrew text of the Hebrew Bible is original, right? Well, not so fast. The Hebrew text, as preserved uniformly in Jewish Bibles today, was set by a group of grammarians and scholars known as the Masoretes in the early Middle Ages. Our earliest complete Hebrew manuscript of the Bible dates from the Middle Ages, the famous Aleppo Codex. We do have earlier fragments. There are many fragments from the Hebrew Bible among the Dead Sea Scrolls. These fragments, though, are not all identical to the text as we now have it. Moreover, it appears that the translators of the Septuagint at times were using a slightly different Hebrew base text than what we now possess. Just because a Hebrew text was original doesn't mean that the entire Hebrew text as we now have it was. For many purposes, this tortuous history of translation does not make much of a difference. For other purposes, though, it is crucial. In religious contexts in which this is considered the word of God, the precise words, their spellings, and their syntax make a great deal of difference indeed. Even for more critical readings, though, it helps to understand that it is probably more accurate to speak of a particular version of the Bible rather than of simply the Bible. This is a long way around for me to say that I usually use one of two English translations of the Hebrew Bible. Usually, I turn to the New Jewish Publication Society version, known as the New JPS or the NJPS, and published as the Tanakh. It has been usefully tweaked in the Jewish Study Bible, which also contains some light commentary and annotations, and is just a great tool. The Revised Standard Version, or RSV, or the New Revised Standard Version, NRSV, though, is also based on the Hebrew text and is very good. For the purposes of this podcast and most of the academic work that I do, the Hebrew text of the Masoretes is good enough, although, as I already mentioned, we will return in a future episode to the Septuagint. So now back to the three examples I promised. My first example of a disruption in the Torah's text comes from the very beginning of the Bible, the account of the creation. The problem is rather obvious. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to the first half of chapter 2 verse 4 describes God's creation of the world. And then the second half of chapter 2 verse 4 through verse 24 of that same chapter describes the creation again. So we seem to have two accounts of the same thing right next to each other. It gets weirder though. The two accounts differ in significant ways. In the first creation account, God creates through speech over the course of six or seven days. In the second account, 
God seems to pretty much create things all at once. According to the first account, God creates the land out of water on the third day and then creates vegetation. He creates humans on the sixth day. In the second account, God creates water out of the dry land and then humanity and then vegetation. In the first account, God creates humanity out of nothing. In God's image and likeness, male and female, he created them. In the second account, God forms man out of the dust of the earth and then, after some time, creates woman out of him. The language and tone of the two accounts also differ. The first account uses a single name for God, Elohim. The second account, though, uses a somewhat different term, appending the word Elohim to the tetragrammaton, the unpronounceable four-letter name of God conventionally indicated in Hebrew by the word Adonai. In the first account, God is distant, a transcendent being who deigns only to speak. In the second account, God gets his hands dirty, if you will, not only forming Adam out of mud, but then performing surgery on him to create Eve. God also appears far more imminent and tentative in the second account. After Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the garden, they hide from God, who is walking in the garden and who seems to be unable to find them. Then, when told what happened, God gets angry. One would not expect anger from the more placid God of Genesis 1. Before discussing how we might explain the differences between these two accounts, let me turn to the other two briefer examples of potential problems in the text of the Torah. The first is the story of the sale of Joseph, the second of the Ten Commandments, or Decalogue. According to Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's brothers place Joseph into a pit while they try to figure out what to do with him. Verse 25 reads, Then they sat down to a meal. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. At that moment, they decide not to kill Joseph but instead to sell him into slavery. Then, according to verses 28 to 29, when Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who brought Joseph to Egypt. A little later, at verse 36, we learn, the Midianites, meanwhile, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, a courtier of Pharaoh and his chief steward. The account appears confused. The Ishmaelites and the Midianites are clearly distinct groups. Which one is it? Even perhaps the most famous passage in the Hebrew Bible, the Decalogue, has problems. The primary problem is that it appears twice in the Bible, once at Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 to 14, and again at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 to 18. And while the two passages are mainly alike, they also diverge. According to the Exodus version, you should remember the Sabbath day, primarily because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. In Deuteronomy, you should observe the Sabbath because God redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. According to the Deuteronomy version, 
You should honor your father and mother so that you may fare well. This is missing from the version in Exodus. The two versions also order differently the list of things of your neighbor that you are not supposed to covet. So what's going on? How might we explain these repetitions, divergences, and contradictions? The answer very much depends on one's starting assumptions about the nature of the text. We are hardly the first to notice that the Torah has textual problems. Ancient Jewish commentators who saw the Torah as the word of God were also troubled by these and many other passages. In the case of the two Genesis accounts, for example, some of these commentators saw the second account as an expansion of the first account, not an entirely separate story. Others, however, attributed to God two creations. The first, a kind of primordial ideal creation to be followed by the actual earthly one. Commentators explain the contradictions in the story of the sale of Joseph by saying that both groups, Ishmaelites and Midianites, were there and that one sold Joseph to the other. The difference in the wording of the commandment on the Sabbath is explained with the idea as later famously expressed in the hymn Lechadodi, observe and remember were uttered in a single word. That is, that there was not a discrepancy, but that both versions were contained in the original divine utterance. When we step back from the assumption of divine authorship, however, these answers aren't fully satisfactory. Without assuming a priori the perfection of the text of the Torah, how might we account for its textual anomalies? It was in response to this problem that scholars in the 19th century developed what became known as the documentary hypothesis. According to this theory, the Torah was redacted or edited from several pre-existing sources. There are a few variations on this theory, but almost all posit the existence of four original sources known as J, E, P, and D. J primarily consisted of an early history of the Israelites. It seems to have been written around the time of Solomon. It denotes God by the Tetragrammaton, or four-lettered name referred to as Adonai. This source was apparently completed around 950 BCE. Harold Bloom, in his The Book of J, made the claim that J must have been authored by a woman, but that speculation has not found favor among biblical scholars. E, in many places, contains stories that parallel those of J, but from a different perspective. E refers to its use of Elohim to denote God's name, and its God is frequently portrayed in anthropomorphic terms, like the God in the second creation account. The E source also seems to have originated in the northern kingdom, or Israel, and thus must date from before the conquest of the north by the Assyrians around 721 BCE. In fact, when Israel, or the north, was conquered, and many of her residents fled south to Judah after the Assyrian conquest, they took their stories with them. At a relatively early stage, scribes combined the versions of the stories told by the Judahites and the northerners into a single text, known as the J.E. version, 
They did so because they felt constrained to somehow keep both versions. They did not feel free to simply discard a competing version, thus upsetting the sensibilities of its supporters. The redundancies and contradictions in the JE source thus resulted from the scribal attempts to preserve different versions of the same stories, even when it came to small details like the Midianites and Ishmaelites. D is the Deuteronomistic history, a stylistically distinct and coherent group of books linked to the court history of Hezekiah that begins with Deuteronomy and continues through Joshua, Judges, and the first and second books of Kings. The author of D apparently knew of J.E. and on occasion revised this earlier source in D's retelling. It was written about 621 BCE. P is the priestly source. It primarily consists of the laws that would have been of most interest to priests. Leviticus, for example, is seen as mostly derived from P. Its concern with order and God's transcendence have also led scholars to posit that the first creation account is from P, whereas the second is J.E. The dating of P is controversial. The German Protestant biblical scholars who originally developed the documentary hypothesis asserted that P was a relatively late document written after the destruction of the temple and either during or soon after the exilic period. One of their arguments for this dating is the sudden appearance of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in P's liturgical calendar. The observation is indeed striking. The liturgical calendar in Exodus chapter 23 verses 14 to 17 enumerates the three pilgrimage festivals only. As with the calendar in Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 1 to 17. The calendar in Leviticus chapter 23 though seems to add both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to these pilgrimage festivals. Why would P in this account create Yom Kippur? According to the father of the documentary hypothesis, Julius Wellhausen, it was out of a sense of overwhelming guilt brought on by the destruction of the temple. The exiled Israelites suddenly felt a need to develop an annual ritual of expiation. The development of Rosh Hashanah was unrelated. It was the appropriation by the Judahite exiles of a Babylonian enthronement ceremony. Wellhausen and his students saw in this late development evidence for the degeneration of the religion of Israel. We need not go as far as Wellhausen or be sympathetic to his more than a hint of anti-Semitism to appreciate his basic point. These scholars are correct that Yom Kippur is known only in parts of the Bible that are stylistically consistent with what we assume to be the peace source. Moreover, you might remember that Ezra and his assistants seemed to inform those who had returned to Judah for the first time about the existence of Rosh Hashanah, and their liturgical cycle seems then to skip Yom Kippur entirely on the way to Sukkot or Tabernacles. The truth is that we really can't date P with any certainty. To further complicate matters, there may well have been different strata of P's, that is, 
a later priestly author revised and added to an earlier piece source. And then the redactor of the whole thing, whom we often call R, was probably himself a priest or a scribe sympathetic to priests. The absence of Yom Kippur from the account in Ezra is certainly worthy of note. But you might also remember that, that the same account states that Sukkot was unknown to the returnees. Just because a festival was known or not known to an Israelite community does not by itself testify to its date of origin. According to the documentary hypothesis then, it was the redactor, R, who during the Babylonian exile took these pre-existent sources, J-E, P, in whatever form or forms, and D, and spliced them together into the Torah as we now more or less have it. The Israelite exiles brought these earlier sources with them to Babylonia, perhaps in oral form. R, the redactor then, like the redactor of J and E many years before, would have felt constrained to retain different versions, even when they conflicted or contained only minor differences. This was true even in matters that we today might think of as having critical theological importance. Although Ara seems to have been committed to a radical monotheism, some of the sources, as I discussed in the second episode of this podcast, have a looser understanding of monotheism. R may have been a single person, but may also have been a group of people, probably scribes who were or who were connected to priests who may have lived over some period of time. It is tempting to connect them to the same group to which Ezra belonged. This would make better sense of finding the Torah for the first time in Ezra's possession as he introduced the finished product for the first time to the Judahite returnees. Let me emphasize that the documentary hypothesis is precisely that, a hypothesis. Like any hypothesis, it is a theory that attempts to account for the evidence and solve the problems present in the evidence. As such, and despite repeated and heated attacks over well over a century, it has held up remarkably well. Some of its assumptions have rightly been attacked, and it has required frequent revision in light of new methods and approaches. But no other complete theory comes close to the documentary hypothesis in its explanatory power. The hypothesis has allowed us to better see the seams of the Torah and to recover the different literatures, worldviews, practices, and politics of ancient Israel to a remarkable, if still incomplete, degree. At the same time, one of the problems with the hypothesis is that there exists not a shred of direct evidence for it. We would like to see some evidence, any evidence, for the actual existence of any of the postulated sources. We come closest with D, but we have no evidence at all for the existence of the separate texts of J-E or P outside of the traces that we see in the Torah. Like the theories of particle physics, the documentary hypothesis is based on the traces left by an object that cannot be, or at least has not heretofore been seen, or directly observed. 
From the perspective of the historian then, rather than being the simple word of God, the Torah is a complex anthology created and redacted by human beings in discrete and concrete historical contexts. If I can return very briefly to the point I made in the first episode of this podcast, this assessment is not meant to make an absolute or exclusive truth claim. I'm not attacking religion here. I've spelled out my own approach to this issue already, but there are many different ways to reconcile historical with divine truth. Whether one adopts one of these solutions, flatly rejects any and all divine origin of the text, or conversely, completely rejects the historical approach. Any thoughtful reader of the Bible must wrestle with those very problems of this complex text that engage both ancient religious commentators as well as modern academics. The Torah is a remarkable document not only for its testimony for a time past, but also for what it produced. For Ezra and his listeners, the Torah was God's law. Although authorized by the Persian king to enforce this law with the judicial and coercive powers of the state, Ezra, as we saw, accomplished little. It would fall to another member of Ezra's clique in Babylonia, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the Persian king, to come to Judah in 445 BCE, just 13 years after Ezra disappears, to enforce God's law upon the Jews in Jerusalem. And so it is to Nehemiah that we will turn in the next episode. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.